Hey everyone, and welcome to the Church Changer Podcast. If talking about the LGBTQ plus community generates fear and anxiety for you as a church leader, then our episode today is a crucial conversation for you. This is a topic that is deeply personal, highly emotional, and often confusing and we're here to help. My name is Lauren Berkerich, and I'm one of your hosts here at Church Changer, where we are focused on giving you best practices and practical tools to lead through change. And today, we are talking about changing the way we disciple the LGBTQ plus community. Joining me for this important conversation is my co-host and my pastor, Tim Lucas. Tim, I'm so glad we're tackling this topic today. I'm with you, Lauren. This is a vital conversation we need to engage. We must engage as ministry leaders, pastors, and so many leaders I talk with struggle with this tension. On one hand, how do we welcome LGBTQ plus friends and families into our churches with open arms? caring for them with the unconditional love and grace of Jesus, while on the other hand, remaining anchored in the truth and conviction of Scripture. There's a tension there, right, between Mm -hmm. truth and grace, and we have to learn to navigate that with humility. And today, my friend Art Pereira is going to help guide us how to love the LGBTQ plus community well. Now, Art is the director of community care for an organization called Revoice. It is a ministry whose mission is to support and encourage gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other same-sex attracted Christians, as well as those who love them, so that everybody in the Capital C Church can learn to live in gospel unity while observing, and this is important, the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. In other words, how can you be accepting when you fall short of affirming? Can, can we change our posture as leaders without changing our position, and Art's going to help us with that. The reason we're so glad to have Art with us is because we know that this conversation often generates real anxiety and fear, and often the response is silence, because we don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't want to offend anyone. We do want to create a safe space for conversation, but maybe we just aren't sure how to do that. Well, it's especially challenging for church leaders who hold to a traditional biblical view of heterosexual marriage. That is one man, one woman for life in the covenant of marriage, and celibacy for all. That's both gay and straight outside of the marriage covenant. But here's the deal. This is too important for us to just duck the topic because it's complex or uncomfortable. The truth is, this is personal for many of us. I mean, many of you listening love somebody who identifies as gay or bisexual, or or maybe they're experiencing gender dysphoria, they're considering transitioning, and those are intimidating conversations. But Guys, these are family members. These are close friends and neighbors, and we need to care for them well. And that's the heart of our conversation today. This is designed to support you so that you feel better equipped to care well for everyone who walks through your church doors, including our LGBTQ plus family members and friends. So let's go ahead and dive in. Art Pereira, welcome to the podcast. Hi, y'all. <laughs> oh, man, I got to tell you, man, I, I love this guy. Your smile lights up the room, bro. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame it's not video, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the face for radio, okay? It's, uh, now, listen, when I first met Art, he oozes passion for Jesus and compassion for people, and I know you're going to love hearing from him. Now, Art, you were born in Brazil, correct? Yeah, I was. We came to the States when I was four years old. Four years old. So you've really navigated marginalization from a young age on two fronts, 
as both an immigrant and a gay man. Yeah, it's a fun combo, <laughs> especially <laughs> in, I think in this season of church polarization. It's been a lot. Yeah. Jesus has uniquely wired you. You have one of the biggest hearts for community building across cultural divides. And uh, I think it's important for our listeners to know, Art spent the last decade working in youth ministry in the local church. You love the church. I love the church. Yeah. I think uh, I used to tell people I have two big loves, Jesus and the church. Yeah. And his bride. And not only that, but he has provided training for our own youth leaders here at Liquid to help us navigate these sensitive conversations on the topics of sexuality, faith and community. And I remember when we first met Art, I was just so impressed by your radical sacrifice to follow Jesus as a celibate gay man. And I personally was challenged by your your call, your kind of challenge to us as a church that we've got to elevate our vision for a more robust discipleship journey for LGBTQ friends as well as for singles. So Lauren and I are so honored to host you today. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So maybe for our listeners, we can start this way. I think it's really important to understand caring for the LGBTQ plus community. It's not just your job. This is deeply personal, tied to your own story. And when we hosted you at the Church Changer Conference this year, um, during the talk, you shared your personal journey. Can you share just a little bit of your personal story growing up as a young man for our listeners? Yeah, um, it's been it's been a real journey. I started going to church when I was 11. And uh, at the same time that I started going to church, I was realizing I was gay. And that's not an ideal combo, especially mm. in the church community I was in. Um, it's pretty disorienting. I didn't know a lot about Christianity. I just knew Christians didn't like gay people. Um, and I think you could say that was a stereotype I overheard, but then it was kind of reinforced by the church I was in. And what we had in that church, um, and I would I want to say it was a really loving church, the church where I came to know Jesus. It's the place that taught me how to preach. And so I owe them a great mm. debt. Um but also I internalized over the next few years a lot of messages of shame and a lot of discomfort, honestly, with my existence um, as a gay person in that church. They didn't really know how to talk about gay people. Um, when gay people were talked about, it was really unkind. I never heard Christians say anything nice about gay people. Now, we might mention that Jesus loved them too, but it was kind of used as like a uh, contrasting experience of like, well, Jesus can love even a gay person, right? you know? Right. Um, and I had, I went to a church, man, where there was everybody. Like, I mean, people who were going through addiction treatment, um, people who were going through really messy divorces, people coming in off the streets. We had everybody besides gay people. Mm. Um, and it just kind of the message that I felt was that there was no way for gay people to know Jesus. Hmm. It just wasn't an option. I saw adults around me with every sort of experience and struggle and sin uh, and not a single gay adult. And then when we would talk about gay people, there were people who would make really cruel jokes about them. Um, and so there was that level of shame from the cruel jokes. There was very little real biblical teaching. Um, maybe just like we would throw around one of what we call the clobber passages, right? These okay. six key verses on sexuality that people tend to hone in on when we talk about sexuality in the church. So we would kind of like flippantly throw like a Leviticus or like a Romans one in there and just be like, well, you know, gay people are, you know, they have a lifestyle of sin and they need to repent. And that's kind of it. Yeah. And we had no way to envision a gay person actually being part of our church. And as a young gay man, it just didn't feel like there were any options for me. Mm. Um, so when I came to know Jesus at 15, there was a sense of devastation. Like, I really want this life. I really want to know Jesus. I had adults in my life who were incredible and who loved the Lord and um, were modeling for me what that looked like. And I wanted that. And also it felt like it just wasn't an option for me. 
And so meeting Jesus in this little retreat center, I just was confused. Um, there was a lot of Googling, <laughs> I think, as everyone does growing <laughs> up. Like, how can I be gay and a Christian? Uh, which at the time you would find just mostly a lot of you can't. Um, and ended up going to my pastor and just saying, what do we do? Yeah. And he was loving enough to go, man, I don't know. But let's pray. Let's read scripture. Let's look for every resource we can. Um spent about eight years doing what we call praying the gay away went to some okay. con, um, conversion therapy, which I, I really won't get into. Um, but essentially the, the goal of conversion therapy or, you know, the ex gay movement is that you would seek healing and become heterosexual. And, um, after about eight years of prayer and going to every altar call, you can imagine, um, it's the only teenager I knew that fasted once a week. I fasted every Wednesday, wow. um, from food and from my phone. And, uh, for eight years, that was the practice because I was going, God, you were going to heal me. You know, I, I dated women. Um, and after about eight years, I had this crisis of faith because I realized it just wasn't working. Hmm. And I was working in ministry. I had the Lord in that time called me to youth ministry and I loved the local church. So working for the local church felt like the best news ever. Um, but then here I was having this crisis of faith as someone who God just hadn't heard my prayers. I was still attracted to men. Um, I had tried to make relationships with women work and it didn't work. And I didn't know what to do. And I had a mentor who loved me enough to just go, hey, you need to face this in your life. You're waiting to be heterosexual, to be loved by God. But what if God loves you right now? And so I started asking the Lord, so what do we do? How do I walk with you? Um, if you're not going to take this away, like it seems like you're not doing that. What do you want to do? And in that, I was able to find this community of celibate gay folks who hold to a traditional sexual ethic, who um, believe what I believe scripture says, which is that marriage is between one man and one woman, and all sex should take place inside of that marriage structure. And so for me as a gay person, it didn't feel like there was a lot of like intimate or romantic paths open. So then what do I do with my life? And I was just really fortunate to find this community of people who were saying, yeah, the Bible does say that. And so here are mm. still ways you can have a lot of intimacy, a lot of joy. Um, attended my first Revoice conference in 2019 and experienced so much relief at being in a room full of people just like me, um, mm. exploring a lot of the same needs from Jesus and who were just committed to celibacy or some of us um, who found ourselves in opposite sex marriages and following Jesus even while holding on to a traditional sexual ethic. There was a, a sense of like, I didn't have to choose between my sexuality, between my experience of who I am and what I experience every day and my desire to know and love God. Wow. I'm just so struck by you saying that moment, realizing you've been waiting to become heterosexual for God to love you mm -hmm. as if that's was a qualifying factor for receiving the love of God. Yeah. I think the church made it feel like it was, you know, um, and I, I think there was a lot of, you know, God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there, which I feel like is a great thing and like a beautiful thing. And I've said it to people as a pastor. And also what happens when God does leave you there? Right. Right. Did, did he not love me enough to change my circumstance? Yeah. Um, and I was so relieved to start digging into the New Testament and going, wait, what if actually Jesus does leave people in their circumstance, which I think we see in the life of Paul and the life of others that he does. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I would imagine just from 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 both sides, this you are navigating a very challenging tension here, <laughs> because I would imagine that there's um, 
some listeners who would say, well, you know, because you're a pastor uh, and you're saying, I'm a gay Christian man. They say, well, that's an oxymoron, isn't that? Your identity is in Christ, you know, but you're like, hey, same-sex attraction is the orientation I was born with and probably will carry until I see Jesus, correct? Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm pretty slow to use words like identity um, just because I think we tend to get lost in uh, the cultural conversation People have a lot of concerns, like they'll say the the term like gay Christian. You can't identify as a gay Christian because if you identify as gay, your identity is no longer in Christ. Right. Um, I often, I once heard a friend of mine say on a podcast, Bridget Eileen said, I, you know, I tem- typically don't use identity language. I would say I describe myself as, and I instantly mm. was like, oh, that is so helpful. So mm. I, I, I would self-describe as gay. Okay. Um, and the reason I separate that is because people culturally tend to think of it as identity and as it like, if I call myself gay, it defines everything about me. It's a piece of who I am. It's a pretty important piece, honestly, in my experience, as I've really dug in, being gay has impacted a lot of my life. Um, It impacts a lot of my relationships. It impacts my relationship with men and with women, frankly. It impacts the way I seek intimacy. Um, It impacts which paths of life are optional for me and Jesus. Right. And how I then establish a life that feels full and good and rich and true. But it's still just part of my life. Right. And every part of my life can and should be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. So I'm, I'm almost confused when I've had people say to me, well, if, as long as you identify as gay, that's overriding your identity in Christ. Right. I tell people all the time, if my identity was in my sexuality, I'd be having sex. You know, but my, my identity is not just in my sexuality. My identity is in who Jesus says I am. And that colors every part of my human experience right that drives and enforces and teaches every part of my human experience and so as a gay person meeting jesus means that i submit my experience of sexuality my experience of intimacy my experience of relational community all under the teaching of jesus yeah and you can see that i just it's so sacred even just you sharing the story first off thank you I feel like we're on holy ground uh, handling the fine china of your life here. <laughs> I agree. I, I, I'm, you know, the, I'm kind of having this prayer right now as we're talking that um, that a young person who maybe is struggling actually hears this conversation mm-hmm. and can see themselves mm-hmm. in the struggles that you've had and also how far you've come and that you've kind of um, realized that you don't have to be heterosexual to be loved by God, that mm-hmm. you have, after eight years of that struggle, that you have realized the answer to that. Hmm. And so that's what I'm hoping. And on the other hand, you have chosen to be celibate, to submit your sexuality to the Lordship of Christ, which I'm sure there's others who are listening who are you know, LGBTQ plus affirming and saying, well, why are you torching yourself that way? You know, this is how God created you. Why wouldn't you just act act on that? Um, how do you respond to those mm. challenges? I think there's a few lies we buy into when we start talking along those lines. Um, the first being that gay people are the only people who have to sacrifice to know Jesus. Mm. Um, first of all, all people are called to sacrifice. Mm. I mean, the call to know Jesus is a call to come and die that you might live. Um, it's important to recognize that we start by dying. Mm. And I think we often talk about it as if, oh, well, only gay people have to sacrifice. To be honest, Jesus calls all of us to sacrifice sexually and otherwise. A lot of us don't do it and get away with it. (laughs) That doesn't mean Jesus has signed off on it. Right. 
Now, culturally, it's harder for gay folks to get away with it, right? Okay. Um, we have straight folks who are committing sexual sin all the time yes. in all sorts of church positions. But, you know, it just kind of flies under the radar. Sure, with gay folks, it's more visible. Mm. Um, but it doesn't mean our straight siblings aren't called to sacrifice too. I think beautiful, godly, biblical, heterosexual marriage is really, really hard and sacrificial. It is. Um, but we often just let a lot of things slide. And frankly... We have necessary grace for the ways that's hard to live out. And I think that's good. Um, that's the, the first part of that. I think the other part is that there's also a lot of good for a gay person in knowing God. Mm. Um, like it's not just sacrifice. Um, Jesus lets us, you know, invites us to come and die so that we might find life. Yes. Um, Jesus says that in him we'll find life, life to the full. Mm. There's still a lot of fullness that Christ offers gay folks and we tend to feel a sort of pity for gay people when they choose celibacy because we buy the lie that we need romance to have a full life. Um, mm. When I came out in a church for the first time, I had a really sweet heterosexual couple invite me over to their house for dinner. And they kind of leaned in and they said, hey, if, if you wanted to pursue a partner, that would be okay with us. Mm. <laughs> and I realized they thought that the church I was working for had kind of strong-armed me into celibacy. And I had to tell them, like, this is what I think Jesus says. Like, I think this is good. And they just felt bad for me. Mm. And they felt bad for me because they did not believe I could have a full life without romance or sex. Wow. I don't think the Bible teaches us that. Um, we do not need romance or sex to have a full, abundant, beautiful life. Mm. We just don't. Um, we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. That concept is super... American, super modern, super Disney. Um, I always, I always tell people like you've bought the Disney lie that you need your Prince Charming. And I don't, you know, and, and not that I never feel that desire or that longing or that wish, but I'm pretty comfortable with the fact that my life on this earth will have a lot of unsatisfied longing yeah. and will also have a lot of the goodness of Jesus. Let me, let me just dig into that a little bit because I do think that is counter to what we are taught in culture, right? And so I like that you call it the the Disney lie because the happy ever after is yeah. finding your prince or princess, right? Yes. That's the way every movie seems to end. And that's for gay or straight. Yes. Right? It's the Jerry Maguire line. You complete me. Well, that's <laughs> why single folks in general can experience a lot of pain because yeah. they feel like that's the end goal of yeah. life, right? So I can understand for folks that, hey, a celibate lifestyle, well, that doesn't sound too enticing for them, but you called out something that you asked Jesus to show you what it means to lead a beautiful life. Mm. What does it mean to lead a beautiful life? I think that Jesus calls all people to find fullness in himself and in the richness of community. Um, we are made for that. Like we see that early, early on into the biblical narrative and throughout scripture, we see this calling to really rich, beautiful community. And even in the old Testament, that community, though it often has grounding and centeredness around blood family, it always goes past that. It always goes past the people we share life with into the, the sort of spiritual community God is building. And so I think so much of a beautiful life for people who are called to celibacy has to do with the other forms of intimacy they will experience, that God will bless, that God will provide, that God will anoint, um, and that God will, in my experience, multiply. Hmm. 
you know, there is so much richness as a, as a celibate person. Um, I hated celibacy when I committed to it. It felt terrible. I just couldn't imagine being happy coming home to an empty apartment every day, mm. um, not having a spouse, not having a family. And I, I think the good news for me has been that I actually don't come home to an empty apartment every day. And I, I don't have a spouse, but I have family. Mm. I have people who've filled my life, who are really committed to me, who love me a lot. I have friends from church that I co-work with on a Wednesday and that you know feels silly, but that regular commitment to being around each other and to share life together and even to like help each other do chores has filled my life so much, knowing that they're for me, that they share my hard days when work is stressful, that I get a hug from a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, those things mean a lot. Living with my best friend right now um, has been such a gift because it's been this way of experiencing. I mean, even it's, you know, it's Christmas and experiencing our Christmas traditions and the mm-hmm. ways in which we're family to each other. And so we decorate the house together um, and we talk about the things that we're going to do this next year that we're excited about, or we go on vacation together, all these ways that we actually still get to experience fullness. There's a sort of lack of imagination that if you are romantically single, you're just alone, mm-hmm. you know, left to fend for yourself. That's a really terrible vision of life that actually mm-hmm. doesn't bless single folks or married folks. A better vision is the one that I think God builds where we're actually living in community, where we're really deeply walking with the people around us, where we're bearing their burdens, we're carrying their struggles. We're also sharing the victories, right? We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who Mm. rejoice. And we show up for one another. I think that's a big part of beautiful celibacy. You know, I remember you describing it. You challenged the church at the conference to serve as the, your phrase was chosen family for LGBTQ plus friends, those who might otherwise not have, you know, biological family or live in more isolation. And that applies to to all single folks, gay or straight, who, P.S., are now the majority in America for the first time in history. Mm-hmm. Guys, this is why it's this incredible. is so critical. Mm-hmm. It's always been like, well, yeah. there's majority, you know, married people in the church. We'll speak to the majority. But no, actually, new reality, the majority are single. So what does the church functioning like a chosen family look like? Yeah, I... I think there's a lot of ways we can do that. Um, I think one of the first things to name here is that chosen family, you know, especially in the LGBTQ community, that's a term we use a lot for the people that we choose to be committed to. Um, Chosen family is a a family we choose for ourselves. I would actually say that the church is a spiritual family that's been chosen for us by Jesus. Like we don't really have a choice in whether or not we treat each other like family. Jesus has decided that for us. Um, You see that a lot in his last few days on earth. I mean, as he prays for the church, as he's in the garden, Lord, I pray that they would be one, right? Um, and John 19, 26, Jesus is on the cross and he's dying. And one of his dying actions is to look at his mother and his best friend, John, and say, son, here is your mother. Mother, here is your son. And he's going, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving you to each other. Wow. Um, there's this beautiful song. Uh, I think it's uh, John Guerra. Um, I might be wrong about that, but it's called Nobody. And the line is, Christ has no body now but yours. Hmm. And there's this invitation for us here, and I think also a command from Jesus to be the body, to be the hands, the feet, and the family of Jesus. So as a church, we actually don't have a choice. There's no chosenness here. Um, We are required to be spiritual family for each other. And I think what scripture would say that means, in Galatians it says that we bear one another's burdens. So if I'm in a church and someone's alone at Christmas, that's actually my problem. Mm. Um, I, I think American culture would say it's not. We're very individualistic yeah. in America. Yes, we are. And we have to break this away as we engage biblical community. 
the American individualization is not reflective of God's heart. And that's not just America, but I think it is something that we see really strongly right now. Um, so if someone's alone at Christmas, that's my problem, that they're spending a holy day to the church alone in isolation wow. mm. when the New Testament commands us into community. And so for me, that means that I'm really aware of the new couple in my small group who just moved to New Jersey. Even though they're married and they will have each other, they will be lonely on Christmas because they won't have blood family. Mm. And so I have to check in and go, hey, do you need my, do you need to borrow my blood family for the day? Do you need to come be with us? Because you're our spiritual family and you don't, you don't get to do that alone. Um, when someone in my community is in sin, guess what? That's my problem. Um, there's a lot in the New Testament. I mean, read really carefully the instructions in the New Testament for ecclesiology and what, what do we do when someone's caught in sin? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of gentleness, empathy, and walking alongside that's commanded. So as a mature believer, when people in my community are in sin, sexual or otherwise, I don't actually get to point a finger at them. There's a command for the Lord to go, hey, what are you doing to walk alongside them in their sin? and to walk them out of their sin with them. I don't get to just go, oh, you're in sin. You really got to get your crap together, you yeah. know? I get to go, hey, here's the way out. Can I walk with you to get there? Mm. Um, and so I think a lot of, with how we talk about the LGBT community in the church, we tend to kind of look at gay people and say, okay, well, here are the sins we need you to straighten out so you can fit into this space right, and this culture. Right. What if instead we said, well, how can we carry your burdens? Like Galatians tells us to. Mm. What if instead we said, what makes it hard not to sin? Like, let's have a really honest conversation. Yeah. Let me not just assume what is going to make you lust or what's going to make you like struggle to obey God in other areas of your life. What support do you need? Um, if if you're struggling not to sin in, in any way, whether it's sexual or otherwise, th that's actually my job as your sibling in the faith to walk alongside you and figure that out. I mean, often I think when we talk about single folks, often we see patterns of sexual sin due to significant loneliness. Um, one of the things I talk a lot about is that um, if you really study neurobiology, a lot of the same chemicals that get released during sex get released when you give someone a long hug. Mm -hmm. um, and those chemicals fight depression, anxiety, and stress, which, by the way, after the pandemic, peak levels in our country right, yeah. of depression, anxiety, and stress. So as a church, we're freaking out about people not being able to be chased in their singleness or, right. frankly, chased in their marriages but there are forms of intimacy that are godly and good that actually can assist people in fighting off depression, anxiety, and giving someone a hug on a Sunday morning might actually matter a lot hmm. to their ability to fight off sinful desires. We provide people support that way. Um, and so I think being spiritual family just means assuming that you're my problem, hmm. but also that you're my gift and that I get to carry those things with you. It's so powerful. I mean, it you is. just... <laughs> when I. When I listen to you talk, I'm like, you're casting a vision for thick community, like a depth of discipleship that, quite honestly, most churches, and I even look at ours, I'm like, I'm not sure that's what we're calling people to. You're really calling us to elevate the vision for folks, whether or not they're married, gay or straight, whatever that is. But man, I mean, it's a really call back to an ancient level of community that the early church had. Yeah, and I think that makes all the difference in a time right now in our country where every conversation gets really political, gets really polarizing. I mean, we're talking about like my community, the LGBTQ community, um, having that like deep integrated community is what lasts then when an election comes around. Uh, okay. Right. It, mm -hmm. When we disagree on things that really matter, yeah. or when we go to have really sensitive conversations, when 
people who are really dear to my life don't really know how to talk to me as a gay person mm. um, that I've gone to church with for years. And so we then have to navigate what does it mean for them to support me in my mm. celibacy? Like having those conversations requires some commitment and love. And I think Jesus invited us into that sort of commitment because it's in that commitment that we can actually learn how to support one another well. Um, it's by knowing, okay, you're obligated. Like Jesus has set you aside to walk with me and me set aside to walk with you. Let's figure this out. Mm-hmm. And I have some really incredible friends in my life who that was, I mean, that's why they've learned how to walk alongside gay folks is because it turned out I was gay. Mm. And then what do we do? How do we as a community navigate that? And they just had to learn. Like it wasn't an option for them not to deal with it. You know, our, in your story, you shared some of the, the pain that you experienced and some of that came from the church itself. And I don't want to brush past that. Because you shared something when you spoke at our conference that was just so disturbing to me. It was that an LGBTQ plus person who attends church is 50% more likely to commit suicide than an LGBTQ plus person who does not. And that it was the only time in history that we see a link between church attendance and suicide. And I want to bring that up because this isn't just like, oh, you hurt my feelings. This clearly points to serious unhealth in the church. And so I want to go go back there and just kind of have an honest moment. Can you point us, where do you see this unhealth in the church at large right now? And what does that actually look like? Yeah, you know, I, that statistic, um, frankly, is why I do the work I do. Uh, it drove me to really start leaving local church ministry uh, and start looking at tackling this on a broader, broader picture. Because I, I think the church is the bride and body of Jesus, and the gospel is good news. So those things can't lead to elevated suicide rates. Like, that's Mm -hmm. antithetical to who Jesus is, right? Like, if Christ is life, an increased suicide rate is on us and something we're doing wrong, not on the message of who Jesus is. Amen. So what are we doing? (laughs) And I think a lot of what we're doing is we're not giving gay people livable options. I mean, um, coming out of the ex-gay movement, which thankfully has slowly died out. I think there's still people trying to resurrect it. But I mean, the ex-gay movement proposed to LGBTQ folks that you would find healing and stop being LGBTQ. You would become heterosexual and find yourself in a heterosexual marriage. That was pretty big for about 40 years. Um, There's an incredible book that we will put in the resource list, um, but uh, it really helps pastors walk through the history of that. that sort of thinking is still really prevalent in churches and it's not livable. Like to tell to a gay person, well, just stop being gay or pray. Like that's outside of my control. Now, can God do that? Sure. I think God can do anything. What happens when God chooses not to? Hmm. In a lot of the communities I grew up in, that was somehow my fault, like a, a faith failure on my end. I didn't do something right. And that's why God wasn't healing me. There was some unrepentant sin. There was some unresolved Bitterness, you know, we were always looking for the thing I needed to fix. That's just not the gospel. A lack of livable options means I can't live anymore. Hmm. Um, I, I think even when we talk about, well, being gay is a sin, which that's what I heard growing up, that being gay is a sin. There's actually a level of nuance that's really missing in that messaging, but that's what most churches say if they hold to a traditional sexual ethic is that being gay is a sin. Now, what they mean probably and ideally is that pursuing a same-sex sexual relationship is sinful. And I would agree with that in my sexual ethic. I would say, yeah, if you are pursuing 
a same-sex sexual relationship, that's sinful. The problem with that versus being gay is a sin, and I know a lot of people who hear those two sentences as the same, is that I don't choose whether or not I'm gay tomorrow. And trust me, as a 12-year-old, I tried. Like, as a 12-year-old, you, you're in the church and you hear that being gay is a sin, and so you're like, okay, well, I guess I'll just stop being gay. You know, and so you'll actually try to control things so far outside of your control. If someone had told me as a 12-year-old that having gay sex is sinful, I probably would have said, okay, I'm, I'm really good at not doing that. <laughs> I don't do that every day, you know? I'm actually in a lot of control, and the Holy Spirit can control and empower me mm-hmm. to not engage in that. Great. I can't wake up tomorrow and just decide I'm not attracted to guys. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of messaging is often what leads um, to people attempting suicide mm-hmm. because they don't have control. And so the only way they can stop sinning is to stop living. Mm. If we can communicate what scripture actually says, like I think um, in first Corinthians, our synequity, that word, like Paul's literally saying men who have sex with men, that's an action that people have control over, mm-hmm. which means there are livable paths forward. If we can call people to livable paths, something they can actually make choices about, suddenly there are ways to go forward. Now, people might still not agree. People might still not like the biblical sexual ethic. Frankly, a lot of our heterosexual friends don't love the biblical sexual ethic. But it doesn't mean they're constantly sinning just by breathing. Mm. Um, And then I think the other thing outside of the teaching is just our treatment. Like, there's just a lack of kindness a lot of times. And if there's not a lack of kindness, there's just silence about our existence. Um, There was a shooting recently at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. And every LGBTQ person I know was devastated by it. And I was surprised how devastated I was by it as someone who doesn't really go to nightclubs and um, someone who lives in a totally different state. You know, it it feels so far removed, except I left lunch that day when I found out and I just felt unsafe and Mm. I felt anxious and all my LGBTQ friends felt anxious and very few of my heterosexual friends even knew to bring it up, um, even knew that it was happening. And my church didn't really mention it. And so you just go, man, like, are do people even care about the things that hurt me here? Mm. Let me ask you about that because sometimes I feel like individuals and organizations like the church are silent because they don't know what to say. They feel like no matter what they say, they're going to get stones thrown at them. Oh yeah. And so the easiest path is silence. What is the harm of silence? I think if you're a pastor and you're silent, you leave your sheep to figure things out for themselves. And pastors who are silent should not be surprised when they wake up in five years and all the flock disagrees in different directions and especially disagrees with the pastor. You don't get to be mad when it happens because you've been silent. You didn't disciple them. Silence is actually really damning to us. Um, and I, I get this from a lot of churches that they're really scared to say anything. Frankly, it's because we should have been talking 10 years ago. Mm. We should have been talking 20 years ago. We waited too long And now your entire flock has developed their own beliefs based on whatever culture they're part of. And now they're going to fight and they're going to, and you know, there's a church split coming if you start talking about it. The problem is that leaves us to fend for ourselves. It leaves us as sheep without a shepherd. It leaves us being pastored by Google, which is not an ideal place to be pastored. (laughs) And so we will figure things out in isolation. Mm. At best, we'll find a few resources. I mean, I got lucky that I found the books I did and that I found the community I did. Uh, But there's so many people who just live years. And I know people who are in their forties and are just finding out 
that other Christians experience same-sex attraction. And we've just left them to feel that and experience that totally by themselves. So that silence leaves us without any guidance and to figure anything out. And we should not be surprised when we're silent if culture wins out. Mm -hmm. Because if my church is silent, I'm going to learn with my friends or I'm going to learn with Google or I'm going to learn with whatever my home culture is. So like as a Brazilian kid, I'm going to have really Brazilian values about this thing because that's kind of what's informing whatever the church doesn't speak into. And that's great. Like I love being Brazilian, except there are Brazilian values that don't align with the gospel, just like any other nationality or culture, right? And so I need the gospel to guide and direct and rule over those things. And so um, as a church, we, we need to be able to speak into those things. The other thing I think is we, we're scared of blowback just when we speak about being loving to people. Like we can't even mention the LGBTQ community or a nightclub shooting because we're like, well, this is going to quickly become polarized. I think we need to start modeling for our church that we don't need to agree with people's ethics, with their choices, with their theology to want good for them. In fact, C.S. Lewis even talks about in The Four Loves how that's the base level of love is that when you love someone, you want good for them and you're surprised when they do something bad. Mm. Um, and so I think, for instance, for a church to reference a shooting and to go, man, we really grieve that this community is being targeted. That might feel political for people, but it's not political to want good for people. That's actually really in line with the gospel. Um, and we don't need to agree with someone to want good for them. We don't need to agree with someone's choices to want good for them and to want mm -hmm. safety for them. Mm -hmm. It really is a discipleship issue. You know, I was talking with some leaders a couple of weeks ago and, um, you know, we're talking about how do you, how are you handling this in your church and your ministry? And one of them said, I'm never going to talk about it. They said, I don't care. I'm just gonna, they, they said literally, cause it's a lose, lose conversation. And they were looking at in that zero sum kind of, is it a win or is it a loss? And right now with how polarized things are, they felt they're going to get hit with rocks from either side of the road. If you try to build the stand in the middle of the road, mm -hmm. you're going to get hit with rocks from both sides. And um, it's an interesting moment because I was I, I said, you may not talk about, it, but everyone else in your congregation is talking about it. Everyone is sitting there Absolutely. in those chairs is asking the most granular questions around what do I do with my 14 year old who just said, you know what, I think I need to transition. What like how do I even respond to that? My uncle is getting married, but it's to a man. Can I attend the wedding? Like, I love him and I don't want to offend, but am I affirming that lifestyle? These are the conversations that are happening around kitchen tables all throughout the church, but we don't want to talk about it on Sunday morning. Yeah. And like I said, there's a lack of shepherding there, right? I think we assume, well, if we don't talk about it, no one will. No, everyone will. And again, the people in your congregation, um, and it's I think especially of young people, if you don't model a godly path for this conversation, they will find an ungodly one. What is not an option for them is just for them to slowly isolate themselves and deteriorate into their own thinking. Mm. That is not a healthy way to live. That's isolation, and God never calls someone to isolation. What God is calling us to as churches is to carry the weight of this as communities, to carry the weight of processing this and figuring this out and talking this through. I mean, frankly, even my pastor who— Ultimately, did we find some resources that weren't helpful? Sure. But for him to say to me, I don't know, but can we keep talking about this and praying and figuring this out? I hope a lot of pastors today wake up and say to a congregant, I don't know, but can we keep talking about this and praying and mm -hmm. figuring this out? You know, th that removes the burden. I just remember feeling such a relief in that moment of like, oh, I, I'm not alone anymore. From 11 to 16, I was alone. But today, mm. my pastor's in this fight with me and we're going to figure this out. That's huge.
you know, my background is in communications. And so it's funny around here, everybody would know that I want clarity in everything that we do. But when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues, I find a lot of silence, but I also find a lot of what we communicate at the church at large is confusing. So first, can you explain what the bait and switch is so that many of us, many of us, we're just guilty of it. We don't even know that we're doing it, honestly. So let's define that. And then can you share how a church lovingly communicates what they believe about sexuality if the church is accepting but not affirming? Okay, so the bait and switch, we'll start there. (laughs) Um, The bait and switch is frankly what you're going to run into at most non-denominational churches that really want to be um, relevant, connected to the community, aware of the cultural conversations happening around them. Um, they'll talk a lot about loving people and they'll they'll say, like, as a gay person, you're welcome here, but they often won't provide clarity on what their theology of sexuality is. And what that will lead to is that you'll have a gay couple, for instance, that starts coming to your church and they'll get really involved. And only after being there for three or four years, um, spending money tithing, spending a lot of time and energy at your events, building deep community, will they find out that everyone around them believes they should not pursue a marriage, but they don't personally believe that. And, you know, maybe they've done the theological work, maybe they haven't, maybe they're unwilling to do the theological work, but now they feel lied to that for three years they were told they were accepted and welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out you actually don't support them or decisions. And there, there tends to be a really violent um, effect of that. I think that feels really painful to people. I think it feels deceptive. So often um, there's a website, even Church Clarity, that's led by folks who I disagree with theologically. It's led by a largely affirming. And by the way, when we say affirming, what we're saying is affirming of same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's shorthand that some people wouldn't know. But like, yeah, if a church is not affirming of same-sex marriage, um, but trying to be welcoming to people, that happens a lot to people. And so that's the bait and switch is you're welcoming, but you don't really clarify what the boundaries and the lines are. Um, for someone who doesn't agree with your stance on marriage or um, stance on sexual ethics. Now, how do we actually lovingly communicate that? It's so hard. (laughs) That's the question. It's so hard. Um, And it's interesting as a gay person, you know, I just left local ministry a year ago and I started church hopping for the first time in my life, which pastors, if you have not church hopped recently, please find time to just go visit a random church where no one knows who you are and experience that discomfort Mm. um, and watch that impact how you run a church. Um, Because I left local church ministry and like experienced the loneliest six months of my life um, walking into churches and just feeling so confused, so lost. You know, I'm used to like being part of the leadership that knows everything. And now I walk into a building, I don't even know where the bathroom is and I've never felt so lost in a church. Um, But I won't even visit a church unless they answer a little email that I send. And I'm just, you know, having done this a lot and talking to a lot of people who look for churches, I know the questions I want to ask. And so I ask churches three questions usually about their engagement of LGBTQ folks before I even visit, because I know I don't want to become part of a church that doesn't think gay people can know God or Hmm. that thinks that if you can't even use the word gay, if you're going to like be in church, um, I also know I don't want to be part of a church that wouldn't elevate LGBTQ folks who submit their lives to Jesus, right? So I'm a celibate person. I believe uh, traditional biblical sexual ethic. I don't believe God blesses gay marriage. I don't believe um, it's an option for me to have a same-sex sexual partnership. And so I pursue celibacy. 
I also have ministry experience. If there's no way a church would view me as someone able to be a leader because they view me as being sinful just for self-describing as gay, I can't be part of that church. Um, that's just not going to work for me in the long haul. So I want to know, does the church have LGBTQ folks involved? Are they able to be members? Are they able to serve? Are they able to be leaders? And if so, what's asked of them if they're going to serve or be leaders? And what I want to see, what I'm wanting to see in that email is a consistency with how we treat LGBTQ folks and others. Are they singled out or are they called to the same standards of everyone, mm-hmm. as everyone else? That's what I want to see. And I think what churches can be really clear about is that they view all people as uniquely sinful, uh, sorry, equally sinful, um, beautifully made in God's image, but also, yeah, equal, everyone's equally got to figure out their mm-hmm. sin and repent and carry that to Jesus. And a clarity on what you're asked of if you're going to be members um, or what you're asked of if you're going to serve. So if your church doesn't do a membership model, for instance, um, what, where can people serve without having to agree yeah. to any of your theology? I think that's a really kind thing to be able to communicate. Um, one of the ways I'm seeing a church do this right now, I'm working with a church and we're kind of navigating this, they're going to create an FAQ. Instead of creating like a position paper on their mm-hmm. website, which I think feels really cold and distant yeah. for people, they have an FAQ on their website already of just like, what do I wear if I go to your church? Just, you know, those basic questions. Mm-hmm. And one of the FAQs they're going to put in there is, I'm a gay person. Can I visit your church? Because if you're a church listening to this podcast, you've probably gotten that phone call or email so many times. Oh, yeah. Right? Every oh, church yeah. gets it. It's, hey, what do you believe about gay people? And in that FAQ, they're looking for a one-paragraph way to say, of course you can visit. We'd love to have you here. We do have a sexual ethic you would have to agree to if you wanted to be in leadership. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really kind to communicate to people that there are limits if you're if you're really committed to the way you're living um, or to the choices you're making. There are limits to where you can serve or be involved. I think that's really kind to people. You've been a great coach to me in this because honestly, before I met you, we would get those emails. And I would say, oh, it's a litmus test. They'd say, what's your position on gay marriage? And I'm like, well, here's what I'm not doing is firing off a quick email <laughs> response to this. And I would always say, hey, let's grab a coffee. And again, that was just, most pastors, when they're not sure what to do, they just say, let's get coffee. <laughs> I think we all can relate to that. Yeah. But a lot of times it's it's more out of, I just want to hear your story. Like, where's that coming from? You know, is that something you're struggling with? Is it something that's in your family? Why is that question important to you? And that's a general good practice for, for most things. But you challenge me on that because you say uh, it, that's often perceived in the LGBTQ community as you're trying to invite me in and asking me to tell something very sacred, share with you my story. And I actually... I'm not sure that I want to do that with you. You haven't even earned the right to do that. Help us understand that, why that is can be hurtful in the long run. Hey, I just want to say up front, there are definitely pastors listening to this who that's their main practice. Yeah. And so many of them are probably the most lovely people who really have a pastoral and shepherding heart. No I mean, doubt. some of the best pastors no I've doubt. met, that's their go-to practice is yeah. let's just get coffee. And I get that relational instinct there. Like, can we please just talk this out? Yeah. Now being on the other side of it, can I just say, don't want to have to meet with seven different pastors to find a church I can even visit on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. right? Like when I email five different churches I'm thinking of visiting, if every pastor says, well, let's just get coffee. I'm like, well, okay, now this is a part-time job. Who's paying? <laughs> <laughs> and as someone like I've unfortunately experienced some really hurtful church experiences, right? There's some church trauma I've had to work through and gone to therapy. So depending where you're catching someone, and frankly, if you're an LGBTQ person, you disproportionately have really deep trauma, often related to the church, mm-hmm. right? You have really hurtful experiences you're still working through. P- 
pastor, I know you mean well, but I don't know that you have a right to my most painful stories yet. Mm. You haven't earned any trust from me to meet me in a random coffee shop and make me cry in a Starbucks just to then tell me that you don't think your church would be a good fit for me. I mean, that would be such a painful thing mm -hmm. to do to someone. It is so much more loving to say, hey, you know what? We actually don't agree with you theologically, or here's what our theological beliefs are. If you'd like to talk more, I would love to have more conversation with you. I would love, like, still do that invite. I love that impulse. But, I mean, and I'll say I've emailed churches that just would not respond to this question. They like they would like, well, we will only talk to you about this in person. And I just I don't know that I feel comfortable enough to come visit you. Mm. You know, like mm. I don't I don't know if you even think I'm allowed to use the word gay. And I've run into Christians who as soon as I use the word gay, they like stiffen up and pastors who think less of me as a person for using that word. So why am I going to go to coffee with you mm -hmm. and invest two hours into this when I just know I need a very basic baseline of like. Can we have a conversation? So I can I follow up on that? Just because leading communications, that is always sensitive. And for example, I'll say leading our social media channels, sometimes those questions come through on a, like a direct message on a social channel. Sure. And, and the instinct is, let me connect you with one of our pastors, as opposed to just saying, here's the answer to your question. And here's what we believe about that. We want to try to g get you into that one-on-one -on -one conversations because our instinct is like, oh, let's provide extra care. So... My question for you is just for everybody listening for that more specificity. Should it be like, no, actually, the correct thing is to just be upfront. So when that question comes through via social media, answer the question. Post it on your website. Answer the email. How, so I'm going to toss that back at you. How, how do we handle those? Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to speak for myself here, but also recognizing I, I know a lot of friends who are church shopping and have their own church history. So many of us have church hurt. Um, I want to know what you believe. And I think there are kind ways to communicate what you believe and still invite us to coffee. I mean, I want free coffee. I always want free coffee. <laughs> um, but I, and, and I mean, honestly, if we're going to talk about communications, there's even an optics here of mm, weird that you're dodging the question. Mm. Like that's my first instinct now that I'm kind of like on the other side of it. I'm going, man, are you ashamed of what you believe? Hmm. And I, I'll be honest, I think a lot of Christians who are not affirming of same-sex marriage are ashamed that they're not affirming mm. of same-sex marriage. Like they feel bigoted or they feel unkind. Like they've bought the cultural lie mm. that if you don't necessarily agree with every action, then you just actually don't love people. Mm. Um, and I think some Christians, they are so scared of what they believe. And some churches, just they, they almost seem ashamed of it. And I'm like, if, okay, if you really, I mean, if you really believe that what you have for gay people is good and good news, why aren't you excited to tell me? Mm -hmm. why do I have to go through six layers of communication to get that? That feels odd. Mm. Um, whereas a church that knows they want me there can tell me that the first time we talk. Um, they, they know that they want me in the room. They know that they have, hey, here's like what places you can serve. And unfortunately, typically those churches are going to be affirming of same-sex marriage, which I don't agree with their theology. So then it's not a great fit there either. Um, so I would say for churches, a great thing to do would be to hire a consultant and create a statement that you would have different lengths um, and a really kind one. And, you know, you might have the email version, you might have the, you know, three sentence um, FAQ version, and you might have the, the Instagram version and get that to all your communication people. And they share the same consistent message. Mm. And also we'd like for you to talk to one of our pastors so that we can understand more about where this is coming from for you and support you. 
That's good. That is so helpful. So again, coach us a little bit because you are a consultant. We Again, we've continued to learn from you, Art, and we're going to give you guys resources here. In just a few minutes, we're going to point you some things where you can go deeper in this conversation. But coach us a little bit because, you know, again, Liquid is a church that we are accepting, um, but we are not affirming of same-sex marriage. We're theologically conservative, but we're relationally liberal. We, we like to say, hey, anybody can come. We're all on a journey to follow Jesus. Um, but again, it sometimes feels a little artificial, like, wait, we're, why are we already talking about that when you haven't even visited the church? So what I hear you saying is it, silence is violence <laughs> just by the nature of not saying anything. But two, putting position papers up on a website is just like, oh my gosh, it just communicates. Cold. Cold. Well, our policy is more important than people, right? Mm-hmm. It feels a little bit that way. Um, you said that was interesting. I'd never thought of that, but like in an FAQ. Mm-hmm. And saying, hey, I'm part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, will I be welcomed here? Um, you're saying yes, but get into a little bit of the nuance of saying, yes, we accept and, and welcome. Everybody. We're all on a journey. And like at Liquid, you know, we I always say to people, you know, we go too far for some, not far enough for others. Mm-hmm. Like when LGBTQ um, plus friends come, they can participate and they can join a small group. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can serve on a team. They can come up and receive communion. They're going to go through the same prayers that, you know, uh, my our straight congregation goes through and their struggles with heterosexual, you know, purity. Um, but we do have limitations mm-hmm. in serving and teaching roles, like leading a small group or in our family ministry. And again, not because it's like, oh, there's a second class, uh, you mm-hmm. know, there for the LGBTQ plus community. But we don't want them to actually feel hypocritical, where we're asking you to teach something or validate convictions and scriptural truths that you don't personally believe. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's more out of, out of that. Um, that's hard to communicate, you know, in a well-worded paragraph. Yeah, it is. Um, I think an ideal version of it might be not that you don't have necessarily a document of your beliefs, but I would love to see, here's what your experience would be as an LGBTQ person. You'd be welcomed. We'd want to see you there. You will be treated just like anyone else. And just like anyone else, if you were to apply for a position of leadership, you would have to agree to our statement of, of ethics. Okay. And maybe it's in that statement of ethics. Got it. Okay. Right. Um, so like a, a link there might be super helpful. Uh, like for instance, Revoice, we have three different position papers that are really key to who we are as an organization. When people volunteer to work with us, we say, hey, just so you know, if, um, if you're going to be like this kind of volunteer, you only need to agree with this one position paper. Mm. But if you're going to be a leader of like a local chapter, you're going to have to agree with all three of our position papers. And they get links to all three of those and they just know that's kind of where they're at. That's what we expect from people who work with us. And so if someone's saying to you, hey, can I come to your church? It would be really kind to say, absolutely. And like everyone else, we would ask you to agree to this position statement or to like this level of our theology if you were going to be a leader and like to be a pastor in the church or something mm-hmm. like that. I just think communicating that is really kind. I, I think a link to a document there might be really appropriate. Um, and I think there's an opportunity here not to make LGBTQ folks a second-class citizen but to emphasize sameness, hmm. everyone who tries to be a yes. member in our church or everyone who serves on a team has yeah. to agree to this. Everyone who wants to be a member has to agree to this. Everyone who yes. wants to be a pastor here has to agree to this. Um, I will just say that churches need to be aware that some churches, they do a, what I call a bar of belief and others do what I call a bar of practice. Mm, okay. A bar of belief is you have to believe what we believe. A bar of practice says you have to abide by these beliefs while you are in leadership here. Mm-hmm. And the difference being that some church, frankly, most churches I know have straight leaders in place who believe in gay marriage. 
mm-hmm. but they would not hire a gay person who believes in gay marriage. That is a bar of practice. Right, right. Double and as long as you communicate that really clearly, hey, as long as you do not practice or do not pursue this while you're in leadership here, you can be in leadership here, you would then, to be in integrity and to emphasize yes. sameness, would have to allow a gay person who might personally be pro-gay marriage but will agree to be celibate while they are on your staff. Yeah. Yeah. You would, that A bar of practice would insist on that. A bar of belief would say you have to believe what you believe. And so consistency there, where the church loses credibility, is a lack of consistency. Yeah, that is so helpful. I mean, this this is, you know, the way we have it, we have a leadership inclusion model where we say, hey, all staff and liquid leaders are required to agree with and abide by staff expectations. And that affirms the historic Christian doctrine of biblical marriage and sexual purity, right? Not just, you know, male, female in Genesis, it's Jesus endorsing that in Matthew 19. But then we say, you know what? We have a wide tent. We recognize our broader congregation may hold different views, not just on LGBTQ+, but on living together. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> 99% of our issues are with heterosexuals, and let's just be honest. And they can still participate in the general life of the church, but there's limitations in leadership positions, teaching, family. But consistency is key. Mm-hmm. So I'm hearing clarity is kindness, but then consistency is key. That same standard of sexual ethics applies to both heterosexual and gay congregants. Yep. So that whether gay or straight, we believe the Bible requires all followers of Jesus to observe celibacy outside the covenant of biblical marriage. And candidly, that's been helpful as we've talked to some gay folks who said, okay, so if somebody wanted to uh, mentor middle schoolers or high schoolers and they're living together with their boyfriend, can they still do it? And our answer is no. Mm-hmm. We've actually had to have people take a step back because they were not in agreement with that. Yeah, that consistency is where the church loses a lot of witness because it shows us that it's not actually about your theology. It's that you don't like us. If it's really about theology, I'm cool with that. You know, even if we disagree theologically, as long as you're consistent, I can respect that. You can show integrity. But often the double standard shows that it's not really about theology. There's a lot of people on your staff who don't agree with your theology. There's a lot of people on your staff who are sinning sexually. It's just about keeping us out. Can you, before we give away the resources, I just have so many questions. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. Art. I'm, I'm going to have a final question too, Tim. Oh, we all get them in there. Yeah, all we right. all get them in. All right. all this them one in. is a generational question because, yeah. you know, there is a fracture line forming here mm-hmm. with Gen Z and probably even within millennials. I assume you're a millennial mm-hmm. somewhere in there. But even yeah, I'm between, 31. Okay, between, you know, younger and older millennials um, who they're like, this isn't even in the category of morality for us. This is a civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. Um how would you coach church leaders because they see it come up and they're like, oh man, that's very scary to them. They're saying this is getting triangulated, um, but sexuality and the Christian worldview has a moral dimension to it, a spiritual dimension. This is the example of you know Christ in the church. Um, how do we disciple a generation now who's growing up seeing it more as a civil rights issue of equality? That's a great question. I think it also shows a lot of the nuance in the conversation Uh, I encourage churches to teach their congregants to have theological beliefs that are really strong and valuable and are rooted in scripture and then let those impact their politics. But recognize that a lot of times we're going to have different paths to the same goal when it comes to politics. And what I mean is, for instance, um, some people think it's helpful to outlaw something. Others think it's actually not our place to legislate uh, sin. Okay. Um, I have a nuanced view there that I won't get into here. Um, but I think there are solid Bible-believing Christians who will be politically pro-gay marriage. 
Um, and the reason for that being that um, there's like social justice tied into the gay marriage issue. So first of all, just the right of an adult to make their own decisions. Um, we could put it that simply, but also just a way that I help churches think through this as a celibate person, there's a shocking amount of protections I don't have that you as a married person do. A great one is when I get sick and go to the hospital, um, there's just like not anyone who's guaranteed a right to see me in the hospital. My only blood relative in this country is my mom. And so God forbid anything happens to my mom. I go to the hospital. No one is guaranteed access to me because I don't have a wife or a partner. Well, this country has no way and the hospital systems, medical systems won't recognize any sort of support from a chosen family member, from a spiritual sibling. You might, you know, maybe a pastor can get in if they have a clergy card or something. Um, I, I don't think Jesus approves of that. When we had the AIDS epidemic and gay folks were dying in hospitals and no one could see them and their partners weren't recognized by the state. And so even though they'd been together 20 years, these people are just dying alone in hospitals. Don't think that's a great life ethic with mm. Jesus. And so politically, I see people who are like, hey, actually there's ways we can allow people rights while still morally and theologically disagreeing with their with the things they have a right to do. Um, so I think we can teach people to engage like that, to, to actually really mm. do the work of saying, hey, what do you think is the best way to pursue the life of Jesus and to the consistent life ethic. Um, that would be one way to engage it. I think another thing is just to recognize that we have to break these down into people issues, not cultural issues. Yeah. Um, so like step back from the politics a bit and make it about the person right in front of you. Yeah. Um, the age, I mean, like you mentioned the age stuff that changes everything, right? This conversation looks really different to a Gen Z person. And Often it just means meeting them in some of the, what they're feeling and experiencing and trying to say, okay, so what does it look like for you to live this out, to practice this? Yeah. Our youth department is absolutely leading this conversation in our church. No doubt. I get the emails, but the reality is they're got the front row seat and living it out with kids coming out. And uh, Lauren, you want to ask one final question. I Squeeze it did in there. because you say, Art, that God has good for the gay community, but they don't know that. And essentially, the church hasn't done a good job of making this clear. So I'd love for you to share what a next step or goal for our listeners would be to convey that message and their support of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, two really clear steps that come to mind are, first of all, pastors, you probably know gay people. Please actually go get to know them. Um, if it's your family member that you've avoided because it's awkward, please go spend time with that family mm -hmm. member. Um it really shows to me that most pastors have no gay folks in their life. And therefore when they have to care for a gay congregant, they're just clueless and they're really distressed. And a lot of their anxiety becomes ours to deal with. And it's not really kind to us. And so actually go get to know the gay people in your community, you know, have lunch with them and not to interrogate them, not to try to convert them. Just, just know them, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but another thing would be actually that conveying love and support to us would mean recognizing the ways we've been harmed by the church. Um, unfortunately, there's like a history of harm between the gay community and the church. And I'm not saying it doesn't go both ways. I do have tensions holding the gay community responsible for a lot of it because if they don't know Jesus, I have less to hold them accountable for. Mm. Um, just as an individual, I'm really concerned with what Christians do and how they love others. I'm less concerned with non-Christians and I feel like I have less right to call them out. Um, so as believers, when we look and we see that suicide statistic that Lauren, you highlighted earlier, when we see... Um, that gay folks leave the church or that they feel isolated. Um, when we see how the church treated the gay community during the AIDS epidemic and how the church still treats the gay community, 
the church's silence when gay folks are killed, all those things, we can hold ourselves accountable and go, hey, you know what? We we really we really screwed this up. Um, we we somehow have created an environment where you've been really unsafe. We've been part of a culture that has been really harmful to gay folks. Um, one of the first steps I think a church can do is just naming that, you know what? When we have this conversation, let me just say the church has not done this well historically. Mm. And historically, we've not loved our gay neighbors well. And Jesus commands us to. That ownership says a lot. It communicates yeah. a lot. If churches would start by apologizing for the historical hurt between the church and the gay community, mm. all of a sudden there's this idea that like, actually you, you care about me and you're even willing to recognize that your system or your organization has been part of my hurt. And you're willing to say, I don't want that for you. I don't necessarily know how to do that. We don't have all the policies in place yet. We're probably still not going to pursue, you know, gay marriage, whatever. But we are so sorry that Christians have hurt you, that we've been part of that hurt. Um, I was at a church once where a pastor said, you know what, as I've learned, I've realized I've said things that would be unkind and mm -hmm. would be really damaging to gay believers. And I just want to say I'm really sorry. And I'm, I'm growing and I'm able to do better now. And I, I, I was there to speak at that church. Yeah. I sat there crying before I went on stage wow. because I felt so shepherded by this pastor owning that he had in the past recommended things that now he sees are destructive, like conversion therapy. So start by being aware of the hurt between the church and the gay community. And if you would own that, then you create a, a posture and a, a moment of um, grace and empathy between you and your gay neighbor. Those are two really powerful challenges for everybody listening. It requires incredible humility, which is a lot like Jesus. As part of our podcast each month, we want to spotlight some churches or organizations making waves and doing great work. It's not just about giving them a shout out, but about pointing you in the right direction so you can become better resourced. Well, listen, I think I'm going to nominate Revoice. <laughs> Art, I'll tell you, I just, again, we continue to learn so much uh, from you and the Revoice community. And we'd love for, for you to just kind of share with us about Revoice, where you're the director of community care. Tell us who Revoice is what you guys are doing and what, how we can learn from you. Yeah. Uh, Revoice has been around for five years. We're historically a conference held once a year for LGBTQ Christians who hold to a traditional sexual ethic and for those who love them. So what that means, it's gay folks who know Jesus are wanting to know Jesus and are pretty convinced the Bible um, would hold to a traditional, you know, one man, one woman uh, view of marriage. And maybe they're choosing celibacy. Maybe they find themselves in an opposite sex marriage. Um, they want to be with people who know what it's like. And so we've had a conference uh, every year for five years. Um, we'll be together again this June in the Midwest. We're really excited about that. It is an incredible time. I've had straight friends who go and say it's the best experience of church community they've ever had. And I'm biased, but I think it's true. Um, <laughs> it's an incredible space. And it, even if you're, um, people ask me all the time, can straight folks go? Yeah, it's just a place for people who um, know and love our community. And we do biblical teaching. We do worship. We do small groups and breakouts, um, but we just provide a space for people to find support. That's historically what we're about. Uh, my branch of the organization, Community Care, we have two focuses. The first is providing direct pastoral care for LGBTQ folks. So we build small groups across the country. We build regional chapters. We have online care groups. We do monthly webinars. Um, but also, the other half of my job is working with pastors. So like, I've been working with you guys at Liquid here and just loved my time with you. Um, we work with right now over 20 churches across the country of varying sizes, 
just helping them grow in their ability to care for LGBTQ folks. Do you have a vision? Can you communicate your vision with confidence? Can you love someone? Can you work past your own discomfort? That's a lot of the work that we do. I love it. Art, you've been a gift, not just to our church, but to the larger capital C church. And it's been a gift just having you as a guest today. So go ahead, just tell folks where to follow your work or how to get in touch with you. Yeah. So you can find our website at revoice.us. Um, one of the things I'd love to offer is that if anyone's looking to have their church grow in this conversation, if you email me art at revoice.us, so that's A-R-T at revoice.us, um, we can set up a 30-minute resourcing console and we'll just hear about your church, what your needs are, how you're trying to grow, and we can see what resources we have or others have that would help you grow in those ways. We want to help you be able to love and shepherd LGBTQ folks much better. That's incredibly generous. Thank you so much, Art. And for everybody listening, in our leader guide this month, we actually are going to have a ton of extra resources curated by yeah. Art. Some of these are for pastors. Some of these are for pastors to give to LGBTQ folks. Some of these are for pastors to give of family members of LGBTQ folks. So actually, you have different resources for different members of the community. And so Art curated those for us, which is wonderful. We're actually going to also have a booking link. So if you want to take Art up on that 30-minute consult, you can do that right by uh, using the link in our leader guide. And not only that, we also have our segment Something Fun or Something Free, Something Extra, because on each episode of Church Changer, we want to end on that high note, right? We want to offer up a recommended resource. So today we want to spotlight a resource, Guiding Families of LGBTQ Plus Loved Ones for Every Pastor and Parents and All Who Care. Tim, tell us about this. Yeah, I'm holding it right now in my hands, and this has been an incredibly valuable resource for every pastor and parent uh, who cares. This is an organization called Posture Shift, led by Bill Henson. You know those guys? They're good friends. We love them. They do incredible work. Go buy their book. It's the I, This is the best resource for families. Posture Shift is writing a new church history where churches, communities of faith can become uh, safe places for LGBTQ plus family and friends. And so Bill actually came to Liquid to train our staff about four or five years ago. And for the last 15 years, Posture Shift has equipped, I think there are over 60,000 church leaders on a really biblically sound you know, missiological approach to LGBTQ plus inclusion and care. And so in this uh, resource, and it's called Guiding Families. Again, it's a go-to for us. We buy them by the dozens so that we can resource leaders and parents who are like, hey, mm -hmm. my child is coming out. I don't know how to respond. Um, you'll learn how to respond well when, when folks come out. Protect gay youth against bullying and suicide. How to avoid the landmines, these unintentionally offensive words and phrases. Again, people are so worried about language and really um, build a trusting relationship over the long term. So um, we'll give away a copy of this, something free, something fun, but also you can visit postureshift.com for this resource or find a posture shift. I think they do training online now. They do mm -hmm. digital training or you can go to a seminar near you. But all you gotta do is go to our website, churchchanger.com slash podcast. Download that leader guide Lauren just mentioned and we will link to that resource for you. And to see everything that we're doing, guys, go ahead and follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Church Changers. Plus, we'd love it if you follow Church Changer on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening. Thanks again for joining us, guys. And can you thank our Pereira? Bro, My you pleasure. are gold, man. Will you come back again? Oh, sure, yeah. I hope you will, man. Guys, remember, change is inevitable. Irrelevance is not. So let's get some humility. Let's put aside our egos and logos and do something great for God together.